0: I like to uh, start these the year off with uh, taking our refuges and precepts and having some talk that aligns us with our deepest intentions. And I think that the there's no better basis to judge our inclinations in our life than in terms of how closely our lives follow perceptual living, ethical conduct uh, or... Uh, Taking refuge, and I'll explain what I mean by taking refuge in terms of alignment of one's life, but these are indications of how we're living. And as hard as it sometimes can be to look at how off-center we are, uh, once we realize it, it can be helpful to incline the mind back towards center. And taking uh, precepts and refuges really do uh, that uh, realignment. It's a little bit like um, uh, busyness of one's life. Busyness of one's life really does indicate something that is amiss. When we're very, very busy, we're giving our life over to time. And as I have mentioned in many classes, when you give yourself over to time, time doesn't cure itself. You won't find contentment using time as a form of life, it, you 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 you'll seek a way out by something called a vacation. But if you notice what happens on vacation is that you're no quieter than in your work life, are you? Because you carry the provisions of that disturbance with you. And we and so meditation and spiritual journey in general is to step out of the usual ways that we give ourselves over to a world of our making and uh, so another way of aligning ourselves or getting a sense of how out of alignment we are is in terms of how much blame we assert external blame usually but also internal blame for oneself how much blame we hold the world accountable for external circumstances events conditions etc and uh, so I want to use the sense of blame as a way to see how out of alignment, see whether we are out of alignment and to use the precepts and the refuges to counter that tendency to blame. And uh, this is uh, the first talk uh, of the year, but it won't be the last on this theme. In fact, the week after next, next week we'll have a question and answer uh, exchange and dialogue exchange here. And after that, we'll start the paramis, which are 10 talks. And each of the paramis represent a kind of way to align our life and also uh, how out of alignment that encounter indications that those paramis also indicate that we are. So we're going to have a lot of of, uh, talks this year on... uh, coming back into center, coming back into ourselves and uh, really asserting uh, what our life wants to be and needs to be about on an ongoing basis rather than to keep correcting, self-correction and course corrections all along the way. Let's let's see if we can get into this thing and establish the certainty of where we want to go. It's a little bit like a chiropractor, I feel, you know, when (laughs) you physically out of alignment you go see a chiropractor and they give you a treatment but it lasts all of about one day before <laughs> you're having to go back but we're going to try to hold that a little longer um, and blame I think is a good one it really does show us uh, that we are offering the world uh, the worst part of ourselves and I have spoken in the past about radical accountability that Willingness in oneself not to externalize our emotional life and project it onto circumstances and events. External, it doesn't mean that everything is going cooperatively. Of course it doesn't, but what we usually do is find our emotions so troubling inwardly and disturbing to us that we try to get rid of them by taking them and placing them Uh, on an external cause and then claiming that they make me angry or happy either way. Neither of which is true. Uh, The truth is that we are accountable for our own emotional life and situations come and go and we make out of them what we make out of them and have an, an emotional response that fits what we have decided was the cause of that event, often circumstantial. But to be radically accountable is to, um, is to seal that leakage and say, no more am I going to excuse the way I am uh, by blaming it on others. That I hold this. And that the precepts really don't work unless we are radically accountable. Because why should they? We don't find any justification for holding ourselves responsible for what we're doing. We just think it's the boss or the, the partner or whatever, and that one, it's just a maturity level. At some point, it's not uh, beyond any of our capability. It's just a maturity in which you say, no, you know, this this isn't working towards anyone's advantage to point fingers here. And when we really allow that response inwardly, so that we hold the emotions, we don't blame ourselves for having those emotions, but we hold those emotions as being contained within the organism, rather than circumstantially arising from external events, then a whole world, the world's view changes. We get very altered in how we now perceive life when we no longer uh, project our emotions outward. And so this radical accountability is extraordinarily important. And may I say that the reason that we're not radically accountable has uh, something that uh, very much to do with the precepts And because usually we're not radically accountable because there is so much pain that we sense inwardly that when anything that looks disturbing to us externally or internally occurs and we carry as much unworthiness in ourselves as we do, the first thing we want to do is defend ourselves from any accusations that this is our fault. So that we do so by deflecting whatever is coming at us defensively external to it. And uh, so one of the beauties of the precepts is that it quiets that process down. Now how does it do that? For one thing, uh, when we decide that an ethical life is worth living, and many people in this room haven't made that decision, and just look at your life and you can, don't need me to tell you that, but once you do, uh, concede that point, then so much of the drama of our life has ended. And, the paranoia associated with the deceit or distortions or manipulations comes to an end. And we don't find ourselves constantly turning around, checking to see if somebody has caught us in our latest lie. And so the whole thing settles down, settles down in a way that we're no longer needing to defend ourselves, uh, which has been our, the way we've operated up until now, and this, this settling down, this quieting, also allows a quieting of our personal narrative. And you begin to see that it's essential, that an ethical life is essential for the quieting of our narrative. That this whole sense of projecting blame and, and uh, holding other people accountable for our mistakes and raving at God and all the expressions of anger and external leakage was just uh, perpetuated by a kind of narrative and defensiveness we needed to hold ourselves in place so that we could uh, not feel the degree of suffering that we feel with ourselves when we're not blaming. And so a mature and accountable person begins to realize that unless we, each of us, addresses our inward pain and sees it for what it is and looks at it squarely, rather than to constantly defend the perception that other people can see this horrible thing about me that I don't want anyone to see, which is why I keep myself con- continually shielded, when I'm willing to expose my own awareness to this thing, this sense of self-pain, it all settles down. Defensiveness settles down much of the reasons that we were unethical to begin with, if you just take one example of that, which is distorting the truth, you'll see that almost always distorting the truth has to do with some self-image that we have or need to keep in place. And that if we ever owned the real self-image in whatever way or that we feel it is in that moment, we wouldn't have the need to lie. The lying is a defense mechanism to keep ourselves from seeing what we think about ourselves. So, and to keep others um, distorted in their perceptions of me. And the other, and not just to bring in uh, the precepts for the moment, because I think people misunderstand. Uh, I don't mean the precepts. The refuges. One of the, another way that we constantly distort ourselves is through our doubt. We're doubting. We doubt a lot. We doubt ourselves, yes, but we also doubt the Dharma. We d- d- uh, doubt the truth. We d- doubt that there could be anything other than what our eyes see, and our senses sense. And we have this kind of, but we're, instead of being honest with our doubt and bringing it forward and asking questions from it, it kind of stays back there in, in a seedy uh, way. And we um, we begin to fester in that doubt. And that doubt really needs an exploration. And until we're courageous enough in ourselves to ask questions that really make the Dharma... Um, stand in, uh, in and and uh, in truth. So we don't ask deflective questions. We just ask the the most difficult questions we can. See if the Dharma can hold it. See if see if the Dharma shakes or crumbles within those questions. I want to if it does great let's get out of here because it's all pretension and we need to I mean what are we doing anyway? But if it doesn't shake then then we've thrown the can and we've thrown the best we have at it, then our doubts will crumble, not the Dharma. And I promise you, throw the best you have at it, because the, the doubts will crumble, not the Dharma. Not the Dharma, it won't crumble. And this sense of taking refuge really uh, gives us an ongoing way Uh, to use and work with that doubt so that it doesn't become manifest, it doesn't become a self-description of how I feel about the Dharma. You can just let the doubt be. We don't have to act from it. We don't have to treat it as being real. It's a state of mind that doesn't or hasn't seen clear enough to discern the truth. And so it's doubting, which is a legitimate mental state for Ignorance. It doesn't mean that ignorance is real. It just means I haven't seen clearly enough to perceive through the ignorance so that doubt will be dispelled. But in that moment, I can just hold the doubt. I don't have to take it as being real. And so taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the fact that things are only as real as we make them so that I can just release the need to invest so much energy in my doubting, suddenly the doubting doesn't hold any Uh, validation. It just it becomes like a cloud or a fog in the morning that clears up by mid afternoon. And that it really helps to have some sense of taking refuge. Because taking refuge is not taking refuge in God. It's not taking refuge in anything other than what we already know. We know that life is more than what it seems to be, and we know that each of us is more than what we have taken ourselves to be. It doesn't need, uh, a, um, an enormous insight to, to get a feeling, to sense that we have packaged our small self in very small boxes and corridored our self in a very, a very shallow interpretation. And refuges, are, I mean, that's, the Buddhas represents the potential, that which we know ourselves, that which we know is more than what we have taken ourselves to be, that potential, that endless mystery that's always before us. And the orientation to the Buddha is a manifestation of somebody who has actualized that potential. And so we can rest... First, with the fact that it can be done, that others have done it, and not just the Buddha, but multiple numbers of people in and amongst us, not just historically. There are many more awakened people than we believe. We just don't have the eyes to see them. And that this taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the way things are, We can begin to see how distorted we make things to be when we don't aren't radically accountable for our own emotional lives, how prejudiced, how recoiling in terror, how horrific we make life and how reactive we draw life in through our different emotional levels simply by not seeing it the way we it really is or seeing ourselves the way we really are three free of pretension, free of image just what is this thing? what is this sense of me and so it just it just cuts to the chase you know it's not asking any belief it's not asking any more pretension it's not asking us to have faith in anything other than what's immediately available and then, to ask deep penetrating questions to what is available to see if we have distorted the way we perceive life and the way we have perceived ourselves. And so taking refuge is this deep intonation of an orientation to life that is unwilling to continue to move in haste and busyness to give our lives away for the details and, 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 uh, pleasurable responses that our culture has told us is the value of living and to ask questions that are deep enough and and orient ourselves sufficiently so that we know the value of living. We don't need a cultural uh, conditioned response. We we can see the value of living right in front of us. What's really here? What's meaningful right now? And I find that if we ask those questions, doubt dispels very quickly. And for people who hold on to just the belief aspect of doubt, because doubt, when you is if it's just based on blind belief, becomes um, becomes a kind of righteous indignation where you're your beliefs are trying you're trying to counter somebody else's beliefs and it becomes a war of words and the more people you get to sign up under your equation of credibility, the, the more you can assuage your doubt, uh, which needs numbers. And, and also there's this constant sense of conflict between my belief and someone else's. That is not Buddhism. That is not Buddhism. Why do we have to argue the Dharma at all? It's either true or it's not. And we wouldn't argue that there was an oak tree in the, our backyard, would we? If there was an oak tree in our backyard. If somebody didn't say oak trees didn't grow in Seattle, you would, wouldn't argue it. You'd just go take them there. And so this is a come and see practice. Come and see for yourself. Come and look. And if you have the patience, you'll see everything that we're talking about. Just come and look. And in that scene, you'll validate it for yourself. It won't be a blind belief. See, that's, then it becomes organic. Then it becomes cellular. Not theoretical. And so each of us need to assess where we are in our Dharma understanding. Look for those edges of our resistance or our pain. And just continue to move forward in those. Proving, proving, the Dharma, beyond our resistance, beyond our conflicts, beyond our our hesitation and our fears. Just keep moving it forward right on through this thing by taking refuge. Taking refuge in our real potential, not our limitation of image. Taking refuge in the way things are, not our prescribed ways of reacting. So these, what we're doing now is Uh, both character development and the uh, path to freedom. Now, character development, on one level, Buddhism is about character development, and on another, it's about freedom from individuation. And those two things seem to be contradictory. I mean, how can you have character development, which seems to uh, personify the individual and at the same time have freedom from the individual Uh, simultaneously and Buddhism speak to both of those points. Well, there's no resolution to that. Fact is that both of them mature. Our character develops, immatures. Our character becomes um, uh, uh, quieter and simpler and more heart-focused. It becomes Um, It brews slowly. And when we live within perceptual guidelines, within ethical conduct, that molds our character. It molds our character so that the character is one of honesty and straightforwardness. And so when we take on these uh, precepts and these refuges, we are setting the course of our character development as well. And character... I think uh, Ajahn Sumedho, a well-known Western monk, said the personality is not what gets awakened. And uh, the char- so the character is just going to be, a- everybody's going to be the character they are, pretty much. But at the same time, there's a deepening of quiet from uh, taking on the value of ethical conduct and living an integrated life and integritous life. There's a quieting and a, and a deepening of one's perception into the very form and nature of stillness and quiet and, and mystery itself. So as the character is playing and frolicking on the fields of relationships and social and cultural endeavors, The spirit of the person is sinking deeply, deeply into that quietude. And those two happen simultaneously. Don't look for your character to uh, be homogenized so that you act like every other person. You won't. You'll be uniquely yourself. And in fact, that is what life wants from us, is our uniqueness. It doesn't care how it gets it. It just wants it from us. It doesn't want our pretension, which is what it's getting. It wants our uniqueness, which is the awakened character. It's what happens when we're no longer focused on our image or self-protection. That comes through, the character comes through in its, in its true manifestation, not in its abridged form. And so in some ways, what we do is we get out of the way of our character. And allow the true manifestation is true spontaneity of being. Spontaneity of being. I am not talking about character now as a conditioned reference to, to that. But the, the true spontaneity, the originality of being, the presentation of being moment after moment. And that is you going to be unique. It's going to be unique in its manifestation for each of us. Now, uh, there are advantages to having a friendly character. Although there are some grumps that you awakened grumps. <laughs> but, but I would like to suggest that there is an advantage <laughs> to a friendly character. Uh, and if you think about it, what the character does is it gives you a, a, a quiet character, a kind character, uh, a settled character Uh, A character that is not uh, dramatic all the time. One that has some contentment, some tranquility, some ease of being. Well, those are beautiful states of mind that allow us to perceive what is true. It's like a a cloudless day. Your uh, uh, sight is, you know, many, many miles on a cloudless day. So you can really perceive no, in stormy weather and it's foggy outside and turbulent and icy and all the other conditions we've had in the last month, that kind of character doesn't allow you to see very far, does it? And many of us don't realize that the quality of our character really does determine a kind of penetrating vision that we can see. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, fog and clouds can't be perceived through, but usually when we are so... Invested in drama, we're not interested in perceiving through anything anyway. And as we become less invested in drama, the things quiet down. Contentment, tranquility, really the factors of enlightenment are character start as character factors, and those character factors allow a certain penetration of insight through because they're not in turbulence. They're not in turbulence. It's easier to see when you're tranquil than when you're anxious. So there's nothing special about those qualities except they just orient us to what we want to see, which is a perception, a perception, an in, in uh, depth perception of things. <coughs> The other thing about a a character that uh, is friendly and integritous is that it provides uh, an environment of safety for others. You can feel, all of us can feel, when someone is being honest with us. And there's a way that we can relax within honesty that we can't within pretension. This culture, it's hard to find because, in fact, many people want to sell us something. And when you have that kind of motivation, there's a, there's a kind of way that we have a suspicion about, well, what's this person really want from us? Even though they're friendly, what do they really want from us? But when somebody's not wanting anything from us, when nobody wants, is trying to sell anything, which was uh, one of the first revelations I had with, a, with one of my teachers, was that he, in this case, didn't want anything from me. And I don't know if I'd ever met anyone up until that point that didn't want something from me. And he didn't want anything from me. And so there was a way that when I felt that from him, I could relax. I could truly I could truly um, be at ease. And that, again, allows minds to meet, perceptions to be seen, insights to be had. <clears throat> Whereas if you're on guard... And that—that that sort of... of um, it's just keeping a little bit of yourself in, in a resistance form doesn't allow the subtleness necessary for minds to meet. And so that and that's one of the beauties of picking refuge in the Sangha. The, re, the Sangha are the meetings of like minds in settled and safe relationships. And yeah, when you're not a lot of us here in the room aren't completely cooked within that, so there's still some forms of image playing out on those relationships, but much better here than taking 200 people from the streets and you find that as people mature in their practice, what they want from you is usually relinquished. Just... The meeting of hearts. People come for the meeting of hearts. For, for them to know themselves through that meeting. When you meet somebody who's genuine, you're not meeting a genuine person. You're, we're meeting ourselves. We're meeting our authentic orientation to ourselves. And that sense of being pulled in is not in any way manipulative. It's this inward urge that we all have towards what is authentic within us. And the Sangha offers that. And if you haven't felt that, it may be that you haven't stayed sufficiently long enough to feel it because it's in the room. It's in the relationship. It's in the interaction. To have some time in your life when you're meeting with decent people, with good-hearted people, with people Whose intention is towards understanding is exceptional in this life, exceptional, and that is what this group is. So, this sense of uh, ethical conduct of living with uh, integrity and and uh, heartfelt connectedness it starts right here it starts whatever we bring to this moment and for the first time we call ourselves home first time we bring mindfulness to bear on our mind and body the first time we call ourselves home and allow mindfulness to show us what's here what's what's actually taking place we're calling ourselves back to what is anciently in us to what's authentically ours. And that just that sense of that touch of awareness, that touch of honesty, that first glance of honesty, often, for the beginning student, is is often terrifying because it shows us all the dishonest ways we've been. And so we have to be willing to sort of settle out through that first wave of, of upsetness about who we Thought we were, and who the awareness is showing we actually are, and let that, let us welcome that awareness into further depth. Awareness comes through our welcoming it. It does. It, what's keeping it out of our lives is our resistance. So, when we're willing to welcome it, just come on, just show me this thing. When you want truth more than you want yourself to see, it, it comes in. And what it shows you is where you're deceiving. It's what it will always show you. Because what is true is authentic. That's not going to be the re- what's reflected back. What's reflected back is our pretension, our awkwardness, our distortion, our self-dislike, our, all the things that are not true or are authentically ours are what's going to be reflected back from awareness. And so we just keep working with those things. There's only one way to do it. We work with ourselves, we work with self-awareness and with self-acceptance, with self-love, each step bringing us more deeply into an abiding sense of who we are. And as we get more and more into that sense and abiding sense of who we are, the less we want to distort, the less we want to hurt, the less we want to harm. We only wanted to hurt when we were living within the the veneer of our pretension. Because that's where our pain was. We were going to cause everyone else pain through our pain. But now as this thing settles down into authentic living, we see authentically that we don't want to cause pain either. We don't want to cause other people harm. And that's perhaps the first mark of a truly spiritual person. I no longer want to hurt someone. Not just wishful thinking, but deeply. I don't have any motivation, any intention to, to cause harm. And that should be in each one of us now. Enough. Enough. And it it comes up as as a surge of passion because that surge of passion that authentically harmonizes our mind with others is also the surge of compassion energy. That allows others' pains to be felt by me. Instead of trying to cause other people pain and thereby prove how much better I am than they because I'm not in pain and they are, when we release the need to do that, when we release the need to harm other people, we invite compassionate response with other people. We can feel their pain and we, then our heart responds in a completely different way than our mind would respond, which is they deserve what they're getting, our heart responds to want to alleviate that pain. And those are those are the indications of us truly integrating a spiritual life. True true integration, cellular integration of a spiritual life. Just small things, but tremendously significant You may not see them as significant because it's like trying to watch a child grow. You don't see them grow. and All of a sudden, you you take a snapshot of them 10 years ago and now you look at them and you go, my God, they've grown beyond belief. But you can't see it day to day. And so you may just dismiss the fact that you're growing at all. Not true, said the Buddha. Buddha said it was like a woodcutter who uses the same axe for 30 years and looks down at his axe handle and sees that it's been worn away, although he can't say that he wore this much away yesterday or even last week. It just has been worn away over time. And the heart's availability for relationship, for people, for circumstances, for love, grows. But because we're a hurried people, we're a people of haste, we want quick Mile markers. We want to see it, and if it doesn't, we become cynical with it. We're not willing to age significantly. If you look at some of the granite granite formations of of the wind-swept centuries of wind-swept um, weather, that over the years these granite formations have evolved from the winds and tides and, and weather patterns, not having, having evolved over centuries and centuries and centuries. So too, to stay in the Dharma as our commitment, to stay in the Dharma, to, not to provide the quick and cynical approach to Dharma life, but to stay in it, so with the resolution That above all else, this is what my life is going to be about. And I don't mean about this scene. You can be in whatever scene you want to. But your alignment with what is true. To stay within what is true. To ask important questions about oneself, about one's life. Not to settle in any way with the situation as a status quo to constantly challenge, to look, to ask those difficult questions that keep us moving forward and taking risks within ourselves. And what happens when we invite this awareness in is that we get more vulnerable. Not, Not so that we get weaker, because vulnerability has a sense of weakness, because there's a steady strength that grows, but a sensitivity a growing sensitivity that feels life with much greater impact and with much greater connectedness, and you begin to sense it. You begin to sense that the heart, that the heart, is leading the way now. This sense of individuation is perhaps what the mind still sees, but the heart has been born open. And now is is available to be touched. To be touched. And no longer do we hide from the pains of circumstances, but we stay there with them. We stay in the midst of it. Why? Because we have simply taken refuge in what is true. And we have provided the path of perceptual integrated action of body, speech, and mind that says my actions will be of ethical quality so that my actions will be in alignment with my deepest intentions to see what is true and to say what is true, to be what is true and to act from what is true. And sometimes we can see what is true but inhibit the action because it means challenging some of our long-conditioned patterns. And so we see what is true, but we refuse to act from what is true. The Dharma stops. Dead stop. Until we move forward, it will be that. It will. Co- we already see it, but we won't move forward in it, will really. we? We know, we feel, we see what we need to do, but we just can't take the risk. It's too challenging. So, dead stop. And I've seen people dead stop for years. It's not going to move any faster than our willingness to allow it to move. We're the one that's stopping it. And somehow, keeping that pattern is more important to us, becomes more important to us, than the risk of what might be on the other side of that pattern. See, this is a very pragmatic practice. Nothing esoteric, no Ouija boards. This is pragmatism. This is seeing our lives directly. And at the beginning, may I say, in the few minutes we have left, just want to point out a few major um, ways that Sila moves us forward. <clears throat> the first way is as a training, it's a training rule that um, it, it, it begins to, m- the movement towards restraint in our life. I undertake this practice, I undertake this training to restrain from taking what isn't given or whatever the precept. To restrain. Restrain has a bad name in many of us. We think restraint is like wheel, reeling us in somehow, like a bridle on a horse. But it's simply not letting our conditioning patterns, our historical conditioning, move us towards and further into our ignorance. And to restrain from the knee-jerk response is a training. It's just a pausing. A, it's inviting a pause into our life so that something else can get in. So I undertake this practice to refrain from, to restrain, to pause, so that I see if this is, if what I'm about ready to do, is going to be skillful or unskillful. And so that the sense of restraint is a training. It's a, it's a giving ourselves a little leisure time, rather than just letting the next domino fall. And I invite us all to bring on, it's one of the reasons that New Year's resolutions don't work, is that we don't allow a pause in there. And so you may have a great intention or inclination of mind, but unless you build in a pause for what you're about ready to do, there's very little chance of it being successful. The condition is just too strong. So, this, the way these precepts are outlined is to undertake the training, which is not to find fault with every time I don't live up to my inclination, to my intention. Okay, I missed it that time. I missed it ten times in a row. It doesn't matter. You just, okay, I'm on it now. Let me. You see, this, this whole thing has a refresh button. <laughs> and... And I don't know very many religions that allow you the refresh button <laughs> They provide confessionals, but this is an ongoing button. You say, "Wow, I blew it okay on I go you never you never become a failure in this thing unless you stop trying because the next time you try you're, it's as good as the first time. You haven't fallen backward in fact if you do if you if you start weighing in on how many times you failed in your precept, precepts as opposed to how many times you succeed you will you will hang yourself as failures you won't last because this will defeat you it defeats everybody it has to come from a different it has to come from an inquisition rather than from moralism it has to come from let me look at what's going on here what am i trying to protect what am I trying to defend here? What's going on in me that keeps me lying all the time? Not how awful it is that I lie. What's going on here? What am I pray? Oh, I see. I don't want somebody to see this aspect of me. Or I want somebody to think more of the, my, me than what my actions really betray. So I'll, I'll say, that. okay, I see that now. I see. Okay, but is it worth the tightness and anxiety and the lie is because when you start weighing in on what you see as opposed to what you do, what you do doesn't live up to what you see. And you say, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. And then you hold your own. And this is what I mean by converting theory into action. You know that you lie, but you're not going to look at why you lie. You're just going to keep on lying. But suddenly, you're willing to look at the image, where the, the image we're trying to improve, and you say, that isn't worth it. Either the person takes me the way I am or they don't. And that's it. So then the next time it happens, you actually put it into action by saying the truth. And suddenly the person doesn't flinch and, and there's this beautiful, often connected camaraderie that comes when somebody realizes because they've met you for the first time. It's like looking in the foggy window and actually seeing you. Uh, wow, hello there. Nice to see you for a change. Haven't you had that experience? I've had that experience. When somebody's really willing to set down their self-deceit and say, okay, this is the way I am, you know. Because we've been told we're not okay. We have to prove to ourselves that we are. Nobody else is going to tell us that we're okay. It has to be up to us. We have to prove it to ourselves. We have to prove our own honesty of intent. We can do that. We can do that. I have another hour or two just but I have to- I have to end this thing or we won't get our protection cords and so <laughs> There's intrinsic completion in each one of us. And when we take refuge, we're taking refuge in not our conditioning, but in something that we sense holds that conditioning, that's outside of that conditioning, that isn't conditioned by it. The awareness, that's our home base. That's our livelihood. That's our life Energy, And it's within that awareness that we can relax. That we can take refuge. We don't take refuge in the conditioned ways we are. That's what awareness holds. And so we are moving out of our conditioned reference into what holds that conditioned reference. In Christian terms, it's the Holy Spirit. Okay, all. Thank you.